Greetings, this is J.R. Dickey. Thanks for tuning in to our podcast. And by the way, don't forget our website, graceandtruth.net. I hope you're having a great day, but if not, hang with me. It's about to get better. Okay, today we're going to talk about our walk with Christ. Let's go ahead and get started. Pam's husband just disappeared one day. He'd been a good husband and father to his two small children and had been a sincere church attendee for several years. But in a seemingly radical change of heart, he just split. Ted's wife had expressed some dissatisfaction with the women's group at church, but soon it turned into a constant criticism. Then she got more and more into wanting stylish, expensive clothes. Then came the sudden need for a new car, a new image, teeth, hair, and other things, you know. And then an announcement. She had found some new friends that were more interesting. A few months later, she left Ted and her three children. She'd been a Christian since her teens, but now she was just way out there. What happened? The term backslider, rightly or wrongly, conjures up thoughts of Cain, King Saul, and even Judas Iscariot. Many of us don't understand the term or the dynamics associated with it. Nevertheless, the spiritual issues surrounding it are so important to us as believers that we cannot afford to ignore, to misunderstand, or to deal wrongly with it. That's because each of us faces it every day. What? You may think, that's crazy. I love the Lord. I would never do that. Why, even if everyone else deserts him, I'll never, I'll never deny him. Uh Uh-huh. It's good that you are confident of your love, but Peter felt the same way. And if you asked him at the right time, so did many of those who we consider backslidden. You know, we face decisions generally every day that propel us in one direction or another. Direction? Yes, you see, it's no accident that faith in Christ produces what the Bible terms a walk or a race. You can see Colossians 2.6, 1 Thessalonians 4.1, and others. That is, at any given time, there's movement in a specific direction. Randy Alcorn, in his book, Edge of Eternity, depicts his main character, Nick, as finding himself unexpectedly in a different world walking on the red road toward the heavenly city of Karis, kind of like Pilgrim's Progress. Now, Nick, at this point in the book, is not yet saved. He's discovering much about the Lord along the way, but he doesn't yet have a handle on why people in this place do the things they do. At one point during their trek, he, his friend Quan, and their little group of pilgrims encounter many people all headed in the opposite direction, towards the city of Babel. And Nick recalls, quote, Just for the fun of it, I turned around and walked about 50 feet with the crowd. It felt great. Nick, what are you doing? Get back here. It was Quan. I turned around, weaving my way back. What a pain. Don't do that, Quan said. The guidebook says once you retreat on the road, you may not manage to ever turn around again. Now, Even though at this point in the book he has not yet gotten saved, his experience is consistent with the Bible's description of backsliding. You see, the words used for backsliding in the Bible simply mean to turn from or to turn away. 
it fundamentally means that the child of God begins to face a different direction than the person and place to whom and to which he or she is called, to Jesus Christ and his home, heaven. Simply put, you will proceed in the direction you face. It's no accident that on two occasions, Jesus told Satan to get behind me. You can see Mark 8 and Luke 4 for that. If you're spiritually facing anyone or anything other than Christ, you will begin to backslide. Now, we don't refer to someone who's stumbled in a sin as a backslider, but the direction and the dynamic are the same. It's a spiritual reality, more sure than the meager law of gravity. You will gravitate toward your potentate, if I can say that. You will embrace the one you choose to face, and you will become like him or it. Now, God desires that you draw close to him, which is to walk with him, as did Enoch, Noah, Abraham, and others. But if you hang around with the wrong crowd, physically or the wrong influences mentally, you'll find that your Christian walk loses momentum. As Psalms 1 describes it, walking slows to standing, which in turn becomes sitting. That's Psalms 1 verse 1. A bad choice, prompted not by God, but your own sin nature, can take you way off course, as with Alcorn's character. Or it may be only one degree to the right or left, however, even one degree, when it repeats over and over, can take you to the place where you're walking contrary to the Lord. One degree, if not corrected, can lead to a big problem. Imagine leaving San Francisco Airport, headed for Honolulu, with a one-degree error in navigation. Hmm. Hope you brought your shark repellent. So, what runs through the mind of the backslider? What takes him or her off course? We'll go through just a few things. One, temptation. We are all tempted, all of us. What you're tempted by is quite common, no matter how unique you may think you are or it is. What you do with the temptation is the key. Do you continue to face it, to entertain it, or do you turn from it back to the Lord? The backslider first toys with temptation, which inevitably leads to sin. Now, the next thing is denial. Generally, temptation works incrementally. Contrary to popular opinion, we don't fall into sin. We walk into it step by step. Perhaps because of this, the sin nature is often successful in convincing us that we're still in control of the situation, and thus we can play around the edge of sin now. Thanks to belief in the atoning blood of Christ and the power of His Holy Spirit, we are no longer slaves to sin. Once saved, we are free not to sin. However, the wages of sin is death. Sin still has its consequences, even for the believer. As long as you deny your failure, you're only going to increase its influence. Next, guilt and condemnation. At some point, the backslider in heart hits the threshold, and denial gives way to guilt. Sooner or later, the devil's tempting bait turns out to be a terrible beating. 
He will lure you to the snare, and then he'll be the first one to accuse you for stepping into it. This is a critical time, though, for the goal of the enemy is then to condemn you in order to keep you from repenting. His lies are laced with reruns of your sins. He wants you to look at him to continually face your sin rather than looking to the Lord. Psalms 66:18 says, If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. You can also refer to Philippians 3, 13 and 14. Satan knows it hinders your fellowship with the Lord. But listen, Christ does not condemn you. He loves you. Yes, even in your failure, even in your pit. The devil works very hard, though, to persuade you otherwise. Condemnation and the false perception of God's anger with you is a powerful weapon in Satan's arsenal. Now, you may think, but what about all those stories in the Old Testament where God got so upset with sin? Isn't God still the same? Yes, he is. He never changes. But you see all of his righteous, justified anger with your sin. He poured out on himself, that is, on his only begotten son, Jesus. When you are saved and trying to follow the Lord, you need not ever again feel condemned. Refer to Romans chapter 8, verse 1. However, you may face a sense of condemnation if and when you walk after the flesh. In that circumstance, Satan often uses it as his hammer. That's when you must turn and hold to the promises of God, such as, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's 1 John 1, 9. That's when you come back into the light. You honestly confess your sin to him. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Isaiah 2.5 And if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. 1 John 1.7 You see, at this point, God actually forgets about it. Literally, truly, no jive. He's already forgiven it at Calvary, and as you confess it before him, it's gone. In his mind, he's chosen to cause it to have never happened. Now, you may still remember, hmm, that's you, but he doesn't. Quote, for I will be merciful to their unrighteousness, and their sins, and their iniquities will I remember no more. That's Hebrews 8.12. Quote, he will turn again. He will have compassion on us. He will subdue our iniquities, and you will cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. That's Micah 7.19. And as far as east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Psalms 103.12. Wow. That's unburdening, isn't it? Next, isolation and rejection. As precious as God's children are, we can sometimes treat the repentant or struggling backslider with recoil, and this can lead to him or her to have a sense of isolation and rejection, not just by us, but by God. Now, the Word instructs us not to fellowship 
with the unrepentant, for that only encourages their sin and can corrupt us as well. However, the backslider who's repented or wants to but is struggling must be treated as Galatians 6.1 says, quote, Brothers, if a man be overtaken in a fault, you who are spiritual restore such a one in the spirit of meekness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. About 50 years ago now, shortly after coming to the Lord, I raced to the mission field of Europe. I was saved and loved the Lord genuinely. I had a passion to serve Him. But though I memorized tons of scripture, I had no real grounding in the Word or any relationship with a godly pastor. While living in Greece, our second child was born and about a month and a half later went to be with the Lord. As you can know or imagine, it was very difficult for us. Our shallow understanding and misguided counselors left us wandering. Deep inside, it was a sense of failure and futility like bitter seeds, and they infested our hearts. Thus, the next couple of years were filled with my own backsliding. Hitting bottom, so to speak, spiritually and morally, I finally came to repentance and began again, under some excellent Bible teaching, to really follow after the Lord. However, just as this healing and restoration was coming about, I confessed my past situation to a leadership couple in our church. I was hoping they might be willing to help us along the way, you know. Unfortunately, they abruptly recoiled, and it made me feel really leprous and untouchable despite my repentance. Thankfully, my pastor and his kind assistant caught me and, in a sense, helped me to get going again. Next, futility. The backslider loses his grip on the concept of grace. After trying to measure up to some standard and failing perhaps many times, he hears the devilish siren cry that his life is futile, that God doesn't any longer accept him, that he's just too bad, too much of a basket case. So why even try? Many, many backsliders simply believe God doesn't love them anymore, and maybe never did. Sometimes our behavior as believers unfortunately reinforces that. Next, self-doubt. Now, you may have already observed that much, if not all, of this thinking is indeed self-absorbed, very me-oriented, and it is. The backslider is consumed with himself. Proverbs 14.14 says, The backslider in heart shall be filled with his own ways as we are all tempted to be? Because of this, he can come to think of his salvation as related to some sort of personal accomplishment rather than God's accomplishment and free gift. Thus, he can doubt his salvation. Of course, all of this is a downward trek, away from God's outstretched arms. But doom is not inevitable. It is not irreversible. It is not over. Too many are too quick to assert the scripture, quote, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For they, if they had been of us, they would no doubt have continued with us. And forget the scriptures that say, quote, Turn, O backsliding children, says the Lord, for I am married to you. And 
Return, you backsliding children, and I will heal your backslidings. And I will never leave you nor forsake you. Oh, I love that one. Or the story of the prodigal son and many others that speak of God's unfailing love and tender mercies. You see, some of the godliest saints have been down this road. Consider King David as an example. You can see the Bathsheba affair in 2 Samuel 11 and 12. Or the Apostle Peter's, he is great denial in Matthew 26. But love, agape love, never fails. It never, ever fails. Friends, perhaps you know someone who's turned to the left or to the right, or perhaps has turned away altogether. Jude wrote, quote, Beloved, remember the words which were spoken before by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, how that they told you there would be mockers in the last time who should walk after their own ungodly lusts. These be they who separate themselves, sensual, not having the Spirit, but you, beloved, building up yourselves on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Ghost. Keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. And of some have compassion, making a difference, and others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment spotted by the flesh. We are called upon to keep ourselves in the love of God, looking for mercy, because we are aware of our own failures, acting with discernment and compassion towards those who are saved but turned out of the way. God help us to reach out patiently and in love rather than write them off. Or perhaps you're slipping yourself. You're going through the motions outwardly, but you know what's going on inside. You're no longer facing, if I could say that, your Father in heaven. You're not at all sure what he'd say if you turned back to him. Listen to this paraphrased story, originally told by Clement of Alexandria way back in the early ADs concerning John the Apostle. It goes like this. One day toward the end of his life, John came to a city in western Turkey. Some think it was Smyrna. There he met a young man zealous for the Lord, whom he committed into the care of the local pastor to raise up and disciple. The pastor accepted the charge and promised to care for the youth and teach him all the ways of the Lord. John then left for Ephesus. Meanwhile, this pastor endeavored to care for the young man. He reared, kept, and cherished him, and finally baptized him. After this, however, he left off leading him in the way, believing the Lord would take it from there. Well, the youth, though, became involved with a crowd of friends that truly corrupted him and corrupted his as yet unsteady heart. They enticed him with costly entertainment and eventually got him involved in vandalism and robbery. Each time they dared him to carry out something worse, which he came to do with increasing enthusiasm. At last, having entirely despaired of his salvation, he no longer plotted anything insignificant. After having committed what he considered to be the ultimate transgression, he made up his mind that he was now lost. 
and resigned himself to the hellish path of his associates. In course, he formed them into a band of brutal robbers, with himself as the head and cruelest of all. Well, time passed, and John returned to the church. Upon inquiring about the young man placed into the pastor's care, the pastor said, He's dead. John asked, How did it happen? What kind of death? He's dead to God, he answered. He has turned out wicked and immoral, becoming a robber. He has now taken possession of the mountain in front of the church here with a band of men like him. Tearing his clothes and crying with great lamentation, the apostle said to bring a horse and someone to guide him to the leader of the thieves. Well, upon reaching the hideout, he was taken prisoner. At once he cried out for the men to take him to their captain, who was standing afar off, heavily armed. As John approached, the head bandit recognized this old saint, and being ashamed, he turned to flee away. John followed hard after him with all his might, forgetting his age, which was approximately ninety-plus, and cried out, Why, my son, do you flee from me, your father, your unarmed old father? Please, son, have pity on me. Don't be afraid. You still have hope for life. I will give an account to Christ for you. If necessary, I will willingly endure death for you, as the Lord did for us. For you, I'll surrender my life. Stop and stand still. Believe that Christ has sent me. When he heard this, he at first stood still, looking down. Then he threw his weapons down, trembling and weeping bitterly. When the old man approached, he embraced him and was baptized, if it were possible, a second time with tears. John led him back to the church where he prayed and fasted for him and cared for him tenderly. John did not leave until he had restored the young man who demonstrated a great example of of repentance and evidence of regeneration in Christ. Dear friend, if you, perhaps, have slid backward to any degree or turned away, hear this. God still loves you. He has not given up on you. You haven't even surprised him. On the contrary, he's given everything for you. You are incredibly precious and welcomed. Turn again to see his face. Do an about face. Come into his light. And you will know his relentless love as he says, I do not condemn you. I love you. And it thrills me that you are home. Come, let's fellowship together. No, it's not too good to be true. It is the way of our God and Father, who is all good and all true. Face it. He loves you. Turn to him now. I'll close with a couple of scriptures. For the turning away of the simple shall slay them, and the prosperity of fools shall destroy them. But whoso hearkens unto me, shall dwell safely, and shall be quiet from fear of evil. Proverbs 1, 32 and 33. And finally, I have blotted out as a thick cloud your transgressions, and as a cloud your sins. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. Isaiah 44, 22. Now may the Lord grant you peace in the midst of any storm, 
and faith to trust him. Look for our next podcast, and may you realize more of his grace today.